Migrant caravans, immigrant invasions, gang death threats, child separations, mass detention centers, ice raids, ruthless smugglers, human cargo. We've all heard the stories and we've seen the gruesome photo of the father and baby washed up on the banks of the Rio Grande in an unsuccessful attempt to cross the river. For the past few years, the news has stirred fear, panic, terror, compassion, heartbreak, helplessness, and the human need to simplify a crisis into sound bites, such as, we're all filled up, but we're a nation of immigrants, but we can't take any chances. But what would Jesus do? Everyone, from policymakers to presidents to the Pope, have weighed in. But while Central American migration has been an issue for decades, it's America's new zero-tolerance policy, which means any asylum seeker who turns himself into border control agents is charged with criminal entry. That has pushed the topic to the forefront of political and dinner table debates nationwide. And I think the only thing Americans can agree on in this situation are very tense family reunions. But reading more into it, it's clear that these migrants know that the road northward is treacherous. They risk losing their lives, their children, their life savings, and looking forward to navigating a legal system so complicated that they'd probably have better odds winning the lottery. And all of this to join the shadowy workforce that fills America's hotel kitchens and farm fields and slaughterhouses. And still, the flow does not subside. In April 2019 alone, nearly 100,000 people were apprehended at the border. A closer look, though, reveals some interesting and unexpected trends. No longer primarily males traveling alone, um, through August of 2019, the Border Patrol apprehended 257,000 migrants arriving as quote-unquote family units, which is a 406% increase compared to family unit apprehensions during the same period the previous year. And also interesting is these migrant families from Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, they made up almost 90% of those. So what's with these families, I'm wondering? What is so unique about these countries? And as kind of odd as, or funny as it may sound, I thought back to my training in fashion design, because believe it or not, fashion designers are actually clothing engineers, and uh, it's a it's a problem-solving process. So the first part of any creative problem-solving process is actually identifying the problem. What is it? And it's oftentimes that we, we um, kind of stop too early on identifying exactly what that problem is, so which makes it impossible to answer. And of course, our human tendency is to make things simple. We would rather just say, when it comes to the border crisis, well, they're just bad people or drug dealers, or they're just looking to exploit our laws, or, you know, we want to, we want to simplify it. But unfortunately, that doesn't really solve the problem. We need more research. We need to understand why things are the way they are. So according to photojournalist Fred Ramos, uh, he's with El Salvadoran investigative site, El Faro, um, and Fred Ramos has dedicated the past five years to documenting the many reasons for migration. And according to him, while headlines focus on gangs and violence, partly because the all too common, if it bleeds, it leads standard for selling newspapers. But the reasons that people flee also include the region's longstanding political, social, and environmental crises. So, you know, in places where the wealthy and politically connected openly flout laws, um, cartels wield power over entire districts, and a lack of agricultural infrastructure has left farmers at just the mercy of these devastating droughts, 
with no backup plan. You know, so people leave for one reason, multiple reasons, all the reasons at once, but it's really not just because some gang wants to kill them. That's kind of a uh, an oversimplification. So now here I am. The more I look, the more I learn, the more questions I have. And I'm curious to know, well, okay, wait, why are these governments so corrupt in the first place? Um, you know, like, it didn't just happen. So I spent hours actually just combing through years of news reports, uh, but it wasn't until I actually dusted off my world history textbook that the dots finally started to connect. And essentially it's this. Since the early 1900s, after America helped end Spain's 500-year domination of Central and South America, we happily spent the next century filling the void by putting American business interests ahead of anything that could possibly get in the way. And it's kind of as simple as that. And of course, you know, we have reasons for our foreign policy, but... uh, Uh, And it doesn't always look as self-serving, but from Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador all the way down through the rest of the Americas, the U.S. government over the last century has used its muscle to prop up oligarchs and dictators and support political coups, install corrupt leaders, and crush popular uprisings. I mean, essentially to make sure we got a steady supply of bananas at the best possible price. And the term Banana Republic came from this exact concept. And so... You know, why citizens of these countries no longer trusted their governments to look out for them, that's, of course, becoming a no-brainer. And everybody involved is this byproduct of a very self-serving U.S. foreign policy. Um, Every caravan is a, if you can't beat them, join them, surrender of power to a certain extent. And these people, you know, it's not that they've just given up, but a lot of it is like the stock market or, you know, Black Friday shopping where, you know, when you start seeing what other people are doing, it motivates you as well. So quite a bit of this comes from a, you know, just when when enough people give up on something and start heading in a direction, other people start following because they figure everybody must know something. But the bigger problem is now, once we feel that we have nothing left to lose, or once these migrants feel there's nothing left to lose, there's really no wall high enough or long enough. And, you know, if if Central Americans are seeing U.S. as their last chance, they're just going to keep coming. And new inventions will be invented through this design and engineering process to to help them. And if you do your your study on the Great Wall of China, the ancient Chinese wall builders, they learned that gatekeepers can be bought and bribed for a high enough price. So even their own wall experiment never really turned out other than more um, successful than a great tourist attraction. But um, so back to if we're going to fix what's broken, you know, we need to get some more, first of all, creative options on the table. And the question that always comes to my mind uh, working with young people in mental health is why would the young people who are the future of this region, why would they fight for this homeland when all around them they're seeing the adults giving up and heading out? The impact that's having on their psyche is far and away going to be the most powerful. And interestingly, Guatemala is now the single largest source of migrants attempting to enter the U.S., and more than 250,000 reached the border over the past nine months, and also the highest number of unaccompanied minors. The irony about Guatemala, which is unique to all of the Central American nations, is these Guatemalan kids, specifically, they're descendants of the Mayan kingdom, which, if you do more uh, world history research, it is a civilization so ingenious that these people created powerful cities and built pyramids and invented a writing system and mapped astronomy 
all before the invention of the wheel even. And pa more palaces are even being unearthed today. This, this kingdom and empire was just massive. And it, it's funny because as naive as it seemed, I just wondered, like, what might happen if these young people really understood the greatness that they had in their own DNA? Maybe they do, but my guess is they're not seeing inborn skills and creativity. And on top of that, what if they had the encouragement to discover new economic pathways and see hope in themselves and their communities before they surrender to join the next caravan north. Because young people, they yes, they do follow what adults do, but there's also an innate resistance. It's part of what makes teens so so great. Um, and I'm thinking also, they're, all, they're already risk takers. And instead of waiting for a top-down policy change, what if there's some way that we could help these young people spot the opportunities within the problems from the ground up and groom a generation of entrepreneurs who could take life's proverbial lemons and open up a limonada con soda empire. So in true GSD form, over a few beers, my colleague Andy Zweber and I, we were putting our heads together, just kind of in search of a little creative inspiration and what ifs and I wonders. And the great part about the GSD methodology, it does involve never overthinking anything too much that it will stop you from taking action. And, uh, you know, beer is always a little extra creativity and optimism enhancer. So, uh, you know, we're talking about how, you know, what if we could just take off for Guatemala, go searching for answers. And, you know, normal people can't do that. But great for Andy. He's not normal, totally free and clear to go and, and do something just like that. So proving that the GSD methodology is, in fact, a powerful thing. Within only weeks of arriving in Guatemala, Andy had already networked his way to a man named Juan Pablo Romero Fuentes, a rebel social activist and founder of the Los Patojos School in Pocotenango. Growing up in Guatemala, Juan Pablo, he'd watched many of his peers succumb to drugs and gangs and crime, and he was well aware of the pull of migration. So uh, in his own true GSD form, he started inviting at-risk kids from the streets of Jocotenango to his parents' middle-class house, where they could just start out by discovering their dreams and ideas in a safe haven, and proving that sometimes the tiniest seeds of action can grow into the mighty oaks of change. He began with art projects, dancing, theater, photography, performance art, and the more kids showed up, the more the energy built, until finally he attracted the attention of international donors who helped him build a real school. And ten years later, the Los Patojos School, which means the little ones in Spanish, it had become a bona fide school, and I call it a holistic learning center that just taps into all sides of young people's psyches. Teachers there, they show the kids how to bake bread, plant a garden, frame a building, checkmate a chess opponent, and and to think critically about news headlines and current events. So they're not just swallowing propaganda, but leadership seminars cover social and political and cultural issues and the importance of moral courage and reducing violence. And so, you know, these kids, you know, they're already showing that there are there are great things that are happening on the ground. It's not all the negative headlines. These kids are realizing they can transform their surroundings without migrating across borders. And uh, already the Los Patojos students have opened a functioning bakery, a farm, cafe, restaurant, and they're creating these social enterprises whose proceeds can continue to fund the school's operation and expand and, and grow this movement. It's genius. And Juan Pablo, this, this guy, is, he's after our own hearts. And so 
uh, after Andy spoke with him, he was invited to join the volunteer staff with the mission of developing GSD's first Central American initiative, we call it, uh, the Empresario Program, which Andy created. And, and uh, we kind of also call it Phase One, where together he met meets weekly uh, and sometimes daily with uh, four teenage go-getters, Michi, Angel, Josue, and Daniela. And since September of 2019, the empresarios, they've become like this miniature business school where they're studying, you know, everything from great entrepreneurs, Thomas Edison, Steve Jobs, um, but product pricing, logos, target marketing, brand awareness, spotting uh, the opportunities within the problems, learning to think differently and, and, and ultimately sharpen their entrepreneurial acumen in ways that doesn't require much investment startup capital. So in just two months, these empresarios, they've been earning money building websites, developing Facebook ads, and they've had a couple paying gigs with a local, a local video production company. So by November, though, it was time for what we call phase two, where we really start kicking things into gear. And I went down to Guatemala and joined the action for a six-day experience. Um, we call it a, a six-day business school on wheels. Uh, because according to the GSD methodology, like if money is their fuel, they, they have to have money to, to, just to, to, for anything to happen. But it would be cultural connection that's their navigation system. And the phase two would expand their minds to the world around them and really connect them to something larger than themselves. That is absolutely imperative for young people. They need purpose and it needs to be meaningful and they need to feel that they're part of something. And once we could do that, we could channel this inner greatness needed to sustain them for the longer haul ahead. And this is the same methodology we've used with kids in different countries and different situa situations around the world. We take them out of their environment, shift their perspective on life, what's happening out there, and also to help them see what opportunities are still within their reach. Uh, sometimes that's what, one of the great parts about travel. It's like when you come home, everything is still there as it was, but you see it differently. And, and that's, what's really important. So what we did for these six days, we got them on the move. We drained them physically, but we filled them emotionally and intellectually and spiritually. We gave them things to, to really feel proud of both in their connection to their ancestry, but also just discovering that they're capable of doing things and things that they couldn't quite imagine in a, a little bit like an outward bound experience and just really doing a lot of reflection and and connection on, on what Guatemala could be and their roles in creating it. One of the most important things we taught them at the beginning of the week is how to look people in the eye and give everyone they meet. We call it the Empresario Power Handshake and Million Dollar Smile. And it's this exercise that, you know, young people kind of can have this tendency to sort of shy away from adults a little bit. They're not aware of their power and how to harness it. But when uh, when they practice, and, and with practice they can do anything, they, they lock in with this handshake and this eye contact and their confidence just hits this spot where it becomes a positive feedback loop that it, it reinforces their, their power and their confidence because people respond to it. You cannot not respond to a young person giving you the power handshake when they mean business. So 
Uh, from there, we began, we visited Iximche. It's it's uh, Mayan ruins where their ancestors had built palaces and pyramids and ancient kingdoms before the idea of America even existed. And they needed to know that. And they needed to know that these people back then, they had vision and they envisioned things that were not easy to do, but they did it anyway. And these kids, you know, they, they knew that these ruins were here. And a couple of them had actually been there in the past on some field trip or something. But for young people, it's pretty easy to take things like that for granted. And without context, you know, they're, they're just seeing a bunch of old rocks and they're not really understanding why the accomplishments of their ancestors were so significant. Sometimes having foreigners come and explain it to them is enough to, to get that shift in perspective. We also went to the National Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology, saw, you know, world-renowned discoveries and these great, you know, uh, early engineering accomplishments. But we also, you know, with this museum, we, we got a good understanding of the toll that Spain took on their culture as well. And this is not easy to face, to really look into their past, both the amazing things that were part of their Mayan roots, but as well as the story of those who took it away from them. And it required a lot of honesty and bravery to peel these layers back and really acknowledge this deep psychological toll that being colonized has taken. And I mean, and also the fact that so much of Guatemalan culture was erased in the name of religion, the very religion that they're still practicing. And of course, they're speaking the Spanish language of their oppressors. This shouldn't be underestimated in how capable people can feel and, and again, how close uh, they are to surrendering that they are powerless. So, but just, just by merely looking at this up close, it, it creates again a, a shift. Uh, my favorite activity of the week, though, was the day that we attended a private entrepreneurship class that we'd, uh, Andy and I had lined up uh, ahead of time. At uh, It's a very prestigious university, Francisco Marroquin University in Guatemala City. And it's like the Harvard of Guatemala. This place is elite and expensive. And uh, But we started out uh, meeting with the head of the business school, and he she gave us a uh, a tour for the the empresarios, a short tour. And she took them to a private classroom. It's like off of a a working lab where other students were were busy, I don't know, doing coding or whatever. And in addition to a a mini lesson on entrepreneurship and cultivating markets and branding, uh, they had several of the other business school co-eds come in and speak about the projects that they were working on and uh, their connection to the global community. And it was it was kind of a pitch for the school and why these kids should go there, why they're needed. Um, but again, this positive feedback loop was really getting stronger and stronger as these empresarios felt welcome. Because these kids are from the, the hood. They're from the, you know, the, the streets of Hokotanango. They are not from elite families that would even be aware that this school existed. Um, these kids are poor. And so, but here they are now, being treated as though they belong there and and the shift is evident they sat up straighter they asked questions they gave the power handshake to everybody they met and it was so obvious how quickly you could see things changing and how they felt about themselves and their role in the future but one thing that really really hit me how profound this day was 
it was when we went to have a lunch break and we're in the student commons area, this open air cafeteria. And uh, the Ambrosario kids were standing in front of this little subway sandwich kiosk. They have that in Guatemala. And I, I noticed the look on the face, this, the woman working there. And she, as Michi, one of our girls, is placing her order, this woman is just staring at her wide-eyed transfix, transfix. Like she's either seeing a ghost or a celebrity or a a ghost of a celebrity, I don't know, or something. It just, and it just dawned on me, like, well, first of all, like, what is she, why is she looking at her like this in this just like excited, transfixed way? And all of a sudden I'm like, oh, wait, I, I see it now. Like both of these women, these dark skinned indigenous women. And I slowly turned around to look and just take in the entire student body of the of the cafeteria behind me. And I had a feeling what I was going to see. And sure enough, every student in that cafeteria was light-skinned. The mestizos, these descendants of those who held the power. And the color hierarchy from light-skinned Europeans all the way to the darker-skinned indigenous. Alive and well. Uh, yes, here. And so just... Like the thought of coming to this campus really was otherworldly in so many ways, but it was exciting. And it was exciting that even though there were no other dark skinned indigenous students there, they are being welcomed in and they are taking themselves seriously. And I could only imagine what this subway sandwich lady was thinking. Just the thought of young people that look like her on the other side of this counter. And, and that was She's probably still talking about that. This, again, positive feedback loop, ricocheting back and forth, back and forth. Everybody's minds are opening these new concepts. You know, and again, the way the Empresario kids are feeling about themselves, everybody around them are responding in support. And it's funny because as small as this seems, these are the moments when this, again, the word is shift, shift in creativity, shift in expectations, shift in possibility, and it can go places. On the final day, we all, we took the kids to, to just really like exhaust themselves. We're going to push them to the edge, hiked up to the top of this uh, Pacaya volcano and just to really do nothing more than gaze just far and wide over their country and take in where they are from a new point of view. Now that they really have spent an entire week, you know, cranking their minds open. And one of the kids said it just right there. She said, you know, we've always looked at foreigners as better than us and that we were below them. And we needed to come to all these places throughout the week to remind ourselves that we come from greatness and we have the creativity to create our own great future. And it was at that moment, just Guatemala was no longer a, a place they saw to leave. It was their civilization, their home, their future. And Michi, one of the empresarios, 15-year-old, you know, she was so moved by her experience. Uh, she pulled out her notebook and she had composed a poem. The poem was really about the duality of her world and just how there, there's so much more than the simplicity that people are always looking for to sum things up. And her poem goes like this. There's poverty and wealth. There's sadness and happiness. The children cry for their parents. There is fury and wandering dreams. The earth dies. There are factories, but trees die. There are families that fight for land, and there are people that only want war, silver, and death. There are people that look and observe. There are people that talk and don't shut up. There are people that yell and hide. There are people that are angry and fight. There are people that are angry but don't fight. 
There are people that hurt and don't regret. There are mountains, there is land, there are deserts, there is water, there is music and art, there is hunger and no food. They argue for power. There is darkness and light and expression. They're afraid, but they fight, and you have to run away not to regret. I'm Dina Fessler with GSD Network. If you'd like to subscribe to our newsletter or access other podcasts from our library of stories, just go to gsdnetwork.net. Oh, <laughs>